Well, over the last two weeks, we've gotten to study a couple different flavors of not enoughs that we can articulate when God calls us to do something. Maybe he calls us to something as simple as having a conversation with somebody. Maybe he calls us all the way to the other end of the spectrum, to full-time ministry. Sometimes it's anywhere in between. When we tell ourselves, as Moses did, as he got a, a similar call and had a similar conversation with God, that we're not blank enough or blank above, knowledgeable, capable, sometimes even lovable. These universal, uh, this foundation of universal lies that we can tell ourselves when God puts the knock on our hearts and goes, yes, you. And we kind of respond, maybe like Moses did, well, you must mean the, well, there's got to be somebody behind you because you can't be pointing at me because I'm not this enough or that enough or that above. Sometimes, there's those days where it's harder to believe that it's a lie we're telling ourselves. One moment maybe comes to mind and it feels like this moment, whatever it is, defines us and disqualifies us. I almost decided to title this message disqualified, but I'm like, ooh, that doesn't quite go where I'm going to want this to go. Like we can picture the exact moment when God yanked us by our jersey off the field and dropped us on the bench and just went, hmm, 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 hmm. It's the good thing. God doesn't edit the ugly out of his word. And there's many, many times you could almost flip the page blindly, point somewhere and run into somebody you did one of God's people who did something foolish. Maybe as an individual, maybe on a national scale. And we think, yep, this is the moment God benches me. This is the time. One character who you'd think, as you read the story, you think, well, okay, this is kind of going to follow this sort of formula of life. Shows up, it's not one of those characters you might think of. The story, and, and rather than really zero in on just one passage, because he's one of those characters that's very economical in the words about his story, we're going to kind of look at a litany of his story across the book of Acts and a little bit of some of the other Paul's writings, because his story and Paul's start to intertwine together. It's the story of one John. Mark. Who is this guy? You may know him a little bit better as Mark. You know, we don't often think of him as John Mark, but we have to remember that believers in the first century kind of really lived in two worlds. So they often would have two names. They'd have a Jewish name, which is their, their culture, hence where the John part comes from. And then they would have a Greek or a Roman name to kind of do business by, which is where the Mark comes from. And so we have John Mark. Sometimes you'll hear him as Mark. Sometimes you'll hear John Mark. Sometimes John, a.k.a. Mark. 
Sometimes John the Evangelist. See what all these names are doing to my brain? Mark the Evangelist. You think it's crazy enough when God changes a person's name? It's like Saul turned into Paul. Uh, Sarai turned into Sarah. It's like, well, here we got like five different names to try and keep straight. Especially when they start combining. He's the guy we credit with writing the first gospel. Now, I know we have him kind of second in our English Bible or Western Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But with the help of Peter, he, scholars have nailed on, he was probably the first one who penned his gospel. And then Matthew and Luke, the other two synoptic writers, who kind of all are talking about the things that they would see with their own eyes, hence synoptic, would draw inspiration from what Mark had written as they would pen their own gospels. And Mark, whenever I read Mark, whenever I study him, I've always noticed just how economical he is with words. He does not waste one iota, literally, in any of his writings. So, but we do actually get a little bit of his background. And it's not going to come from his writing, because he would probably say, I'm Mark, nice to meet you. But we're going to look at Luke's writing, who is the author of the book of Acts, where his story starts to play out. We get to learn a little bit more about who this guy, John Mark, is. So let's start out seeing who, where his foundation comes from in Acts 12. As soon as he, this is Peter that I'm talking about here. As soon as Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to Rhoda, you're out of your mind. You crazy girl. But she insisted it was so. And they said, it is his angel. Because that's the only explanation we can come up with. Now, let me flesh this out a little bit because this is dropping right into the middle of a miraculous episode. All of Acts 12 is about Peter's miraculous prison break. Where he is literally chained to two guards, one on either side of him, and an angel comes, puts the guards to sleep, undoes the, the stocks, undoes the prison door, gets him out, gets him out into the, the courtyard of the prison, gets him out to where he's free from where the guards are. As we read a little bit earlier, while Peter was kept in prison, and I'm going to tie the two parts together, the church fervently prayed to God for him. Now we, assume, we guess that Mark and his family were part of this church that is praying fervently to God for Peter. If not the exact group that we just read about, that's praying for him to, God, whatever you're going to do, however you're going to do it, help Peter out. But as Peter has been miraculously busted out of jail, he thinks it's a vision. He's probably maybe even a little bit like, what is going on? I was, five minutes ago, I was chained to two guards in a prison cell. Now I'm out in the courtyard and I'm 
It's free and there's no prison guards attached to me. So the first place he goes is to Mary's house, who's the mother of John, who's also known as Mark. Probably, you know, when you're, you're kind of maybe a bit out of it, you go to the place you know really well, that you've been to regularly. So we got to guess, this was a place that they, they, had, they had regularly gathered. We also know from that little bit that he's probably coming from a house of means. A little bit of wealth to his family. Because we read that phrase in verse 12, many were gathered praying fervently to God for Peter. Well, there weren't, back in the first century, there weren't a lot of places that many people could gather together. You'd have these little, maybe three or four room houses um, trying to gather many, whatever that may have been. It'd been very difficult unless you had a little bit of size to it. So we know, okay, Mary, uh, Mary, Mark's mother, must have some kind of wealth to her name. Um, and so it makes sense that, that Mark can answer a ministry call as the story continues. Because his mom, though probably widowed at this point, because uh, we don't know anything about his dad, we figure, all right, before this story happened, he probably had passed away or something like that. But she's set up well. Because without a husband, without her son being around, um, women were kind of uh, really on their own, um, with essentially living with three strikes against them. And we know Paul is getting ready to leave on his first, minute, first missionary journey a little bit later on in Acts 12, where we see that after completing their mission, Barnabas and Saul, eventually becoming Paul, returned to Jerusalem and brought with them John, whose other name was Mark, as they're getting ready to make their first journey. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, Mark, also to assist them. So the later part of Acts 12, the early part of Acts 13, they're on this first missionary journey, and John Mark is helping them out. Now we know Paul, we know Barnabas, who happens to be Mark's cousin, have a call from the Holy Spirit into ministry. We see this from other parts of, of this story going on. Is it the same for Mark? We don't exactly know. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit calling John Mark. Maybe it was Barnabas as a human being, saying, hey, my cousin's a cool guy. Let's bring him along. He can help us out. That's why I emphasize that part that they were related to each other. And we're not sure exactly, you know, this is where a lot of that um, economical writing about Mark starts to come in. We're not sure exactly what kind of assisting he did, but given the wording, he was probably some kind of secretary for Saul and for Barnabas. Which, note, and Marie, I'm glad you're here to hear this, that is not a second-rate calling to ministry. Let the record show that I am saying that. There's a lot we don't know. But we know something goes awry as the journey continues. 
Then Paul and his companions set out, set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John, Mark, however, left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know the details, but for some reason, as the journey is going on, as the missionary uh, trek is going on, Mark and Paul split ways. And it left, though we, it, scholars, the scholars love to be scholars. They try and figure out, reading between the lines, what happened, what got messed up, what was the rift between them. Not a lot we can, not a lot of good we're going to get trying to figure that out. But whatever it was, it left a sour taste in Paul's mouth. Maybe understandably so. So a couple of chapters, a couple years later, they're getting ready to start their second journey. Now, Paul went on four different missionary journeys. And they're trying to, they're, they're set up, desiring to go back. I'll read this and then set it up. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the believers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they were doing. There was this thing where John and, or, um, Mark and Barnabas and their entourage were going through, sharing the gospel, and then there were people kind of false teachers sort of following behind, having this Jesus plus Jewish law thing going on. Yes, you can have your Jesus, and that's all great, but you've got to be circumcised too. That's how you get saved. You've got to have both. Peter and, and Barnabas, or Peter would say this too, yes, but Paul and Barnabas are like, uh-uh, that's not how it works. So they kind of come up behind and try and re-encourage the churches. And Barnabas, again, being related to John Mark, he tries to make the case to bring John Mark back on board. Hey, whatever it was that went on with you guys two, three years ago, Paul, let it go. Bring John Mark back on board. We can use him again. Well, that sour taste, that acid in Paul's mouth must apparently still be burning a little bit. Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul decided not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. The disagreement became so sharp that they... Paul and Barnabas parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and set out, the believers commending them to the grace of the Lord. For whatever reason, and again, we don't know the details, and I'm not going to try and speculate, Paul wanted nothing to do with John Mark by Acts 15, by the second missionary Jew. So much so that the guy who's advocating for him to join the group, he says, no, I'm not even going to be on this journey with you. And he and his friend Barnabas split ways. Now, yes, there's certainly something to say for the church is bigger than any one group, any one church. And sometimes when that happens and you see believers just go, boom, and all of a sudden you have ministry in different Areas. Yes, maybe that's what God had in mind. But, bring this back down to locally, what's happening here with this group. For whatever reason, however it played out, John Mark blew it with Paul. You ever face that feeling? 
where it's just like, ooh. I remember a coach that I looked up to. This is back in high school. Coach LeBlanc, my varsity wrestling coach. One day he catches me in the locker room after for whatever reason I didn't make weight. And he doesn't yell and he doesn't slam lockers or anything like that and he just looks at me. He says, I'm very disappointed in you. And he walks away. And of so many different elements that I've had in my, in my athletic career, that one was just soul crushing. I imagine, um, I know it's been a few years since this came out, um, but there's a scene in the Jesus film that's, that's shared the gospel with people all around the world where Peter, being, having been told, you're going to deny me three times by Jesus the night of his arrest and, cruci- and night, weekend of his crucifixion, and he denies him once, and he denies him twice, and he denies him three times. And the, the cock crows, and Peter's, it starts to kind of sink in on Peter, and Peter and Jesus look at each other, and nobody says a word. And you just see the look in Jesus' face. Whoever acted it was just brilliant, and it's just like soul-crushing on Peter. Maybe you know a little bit of what Peter or John Mark felt like. Where it's like saying the silliest amongst this crowd, um, maybe it feels like you let God down and there's nothing you can, nothing God can do that's going to redeem this back. That's going to get you back off the bench, back out into the missionary field. Maybe there's something very real that makes you feel that way. As I said earlier, we can, we can come up with all the I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not this or that or the other thing, and we can get real creative about the lies we can tell ourselves about that sort of stuff. Sometimes we know an exact instance where we're like, man, that is the reason I'm done. I'm finished. But here's the thing. And this is probably the moment where I realized as I got to, to writing this part of the message where I'm like, disqualified is not going to be a good sermon title. God makes good use of the conscience. In the same way we can be creative about telling our li- ourselves the lies about why God can't use us, God will use the same kind of conscience to put us back out there. In the same way we feel like he yanked us off the field, threw us on the bench. Sorry for all the sports references today. It's just... He yanks us off the bench, throws us back into the field. Or maybe... God says, yeah, all right, (laughs) you blew it here. But I've been learning over the last month or so as I've been doing some study and and coaching and stuff like that, that there's a difference between these two elements that I'm talking about here, that I've been talking about throughout this message. A big difference between guilt and shame comes out in these definitions. It's probably the best way I can put it. And this is, this is stuff my coach has taught me, not that I've come up with on my own. Guilt is I did something wrong. That's when God can use the conscience. Where we have that, oh man, I blew it moment. 
shame is I am something wrong. You feel the difference? Shame is that lie that we handcuff ourselves with. I blew it. I yelled at somebody. I, you know, did this or that or this immorality or, or whatever. Yeah, guilt would say, okay, you're, you're going to feel some sting for that. Shame would say, that means I am something that I'm not. I am something wrong. God will use guilt. God will use that twinge of the conscience. I'm, this is something I need to repent from. Shame is our own creation. Those things we can tell ourselves, I'm not, I am unlovable. I am incapable. I am all these things that God says, no, I put my son on the cross so none of that would ever be true. Here's the trick. For the guilt that Mark may feel, for maybe even the shame he may set himself up in, this isn't the end of the story for John Mark. And when Paul himself is in a prison cell, in his very last writing, one of his most personal, he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. The guy I yanked off the field, the guy I wanted nothing to do with, get him and bring him with you for he is useful in my ministry. I'm really glad, as I said earlier, that God doesn't edit out the ugly in his word. That we could point blindly to just about any page on here and run into somebody who blew it. Somebody who had God-given guilt for something they messed up. We don't know what it was, again, in pure Mark and character, we don't know what it was that matured John Mark to the point where he kind of gets back on Paul's good graces. Maybe he matured out of youthful arrogance. Maybe he, there was some part of the mission field that didn't scare him as much anymore. We don't know. Just as much as we don't know what made the split, we don't know exactly what brought the restoration back. But here's the good thing. Because God doesn't edit out the ugly, we have a host of other characters that fit kind of what John Mark did and blew it somewhere. Or there was something that says, there's no way God's using you. And we can see how God responds to other people who would be disqualified from ministry. People like David, like Peter, like the woman at the well, like Saul, the guy who ditched, who said, I don't want anything to do with John Mark. Like Rahab, who we talked about the other week. Just to name a few. It's a safe bet. The same way grace found their, its way into all of these stories, that grace somehow found its way into John Mark and Paul's story. And grace put these two missionaries who were at probably ready to, to go to, to fisticuffs on each other, put them back on the same team. That when, when Paul needed encouragement, he said, 
I want Mark. It's a phrase I often use in different contexts. Yes, sometimes in sports. All that matters when you're seven times knocked down is the eighth time you're getting up. And God's grace, when we've been knocked down seven times, is able to pick us back up that eighth time. And in the end, that's really all that matters. So what is it that holds you back? That you need God to pick you up and dust you off and put you back out there. Whatever it may be, here's my my challenge, my call, my encouragement to you. Bring that to God. Here it is, God. The sin, the failures, the shortcomings. Clean them away. Pick me back up the eighth time. Pick me back up the 800th time, whatever it is, so that I can serve you well, so that in that I can experience abundant life in you again. Make that your prayer this week. And here's my prayer back. That God's response, that God's answer to that prayer, God, pick me up, dust me off, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. That God's response might be swift and unmistakable. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for being a God who picks us up, dusts us off, puts us back out there by whatever means necessary. We pray that if there is something that holds us back, if there's some lie we tell ourselves that is not part of our character, not part of who you created us to be, that you would free us from it so that we could experience the abundant life you sent your son to give us. In all of it, may you receive the glory and the honor and the praise we pray. Amen.